This week I'm joined by Sheldon Solomon, who is one of the co-developers of Terror Management Theory and a co-author of the book The Worm at the Core on the Role of Death in Life. In this episode we discuss human mortality, death anxiety and the meaning of life in relation to death. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support the podcast or become part of the community, please find links in the description below. Enjoy. So, Sheldon Solomon, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Uh, my pleasure, James. Um, you you have actually been recommended by so many people, um, and this this book in in particular, so many people wanted you on. So, you know, I'm super thankful you're on. Um, we're going to be talking about. Um, in short, we're going to be talking about death, um, but we're going to be talking about your book, uh, The Worm at the Core on the Role of Death in Life, which I believe was published in 2015. Um, but before we jump in on that, just tell us a little bit about yourself, what it is you do, and uh, how you came to be so interested in, in uh, the end of it all. Yeah, um, well, I am by training an experimental um, social psychologist. I teach at Skidmore College, uh, which is a little uh, liberal arts school in um, upstate New York. Uh, my interest in matters pertaining to life and death is both uh, personal and professional. Uh, on the personal front, um, I've been really radically disinclined to die for as long as I can remember. <laughs> and um, I tell this tale a lot, but I, I I remember it vividly being eight or nine years old the day after my grandmother died. And mm -hmm. uh, my mom said the day before, you know, say goodbye to grandma. She's not well. And I knew she wasn't well. Um, she died the next day and I'm sitting around a little kid and I'm like, oh, I'm going to miss my grandmother. And I had a stamp collection and I was looking at postage stamps of dead American presidents. And I was like, wow. I guess all these presidents are dead. My grandmother's dead. Oh, that means my mom's going to grow old and die. And that made me miserable because then where's my dinner going to come from? <laughs> and then literally, like someone had dropped a planet on top of my head. Um, I made the final connection between myself and the rest of the animate world and, and realized that I, too, would someday die. And uh, I had, I think, uh, a minor existential crisis that I was able to bury psychologically for a couple of decades. I, I would ruminate about it from time to time. Uh, but then fast forward, uh, you know, 15 or 20 years, I finished my Ph.D., um, in psychology, and, and I got a job at Skidmore, and it was in my first week as a professor at Skidmore that I stumbled by accident uh, onto the books uh, of Ernest Becker, uh, who you know uh, from your other work and talking with Dan Lechte, uh, was at the time a recently deceased cultural anthropologist. And uh, there were three books next to each other at the Skidmore Library, The Birth and Death of Meaning, The Denial of Death, and escape from evil. And I, I found the titles uh, quite captivating. So I grabbed the birth and death of meaning. And in the first paragraph, Becker says, I want to understand why people do what they do when they do it. Mm -hmm. There was something like that. And I'm like, geez, me too. Uh, you know, after getting a PhD, having to wade through mind numbing jargon uh, and hyper specialization, Here's a guy just saying, I want to understand why people do stupid shit. And he insisted that 
it would require a very broad interdisciplinary approach to and i i found that very appealing and then the next book on the shelf the denial of death um in the first paragraph he said it's the uniquely human awareness of death that gives rise to potentially debilitating existential terror and it is in our ongoing efforts as a species and as individuals to deny the reality of the human condition that whether we're aware of it or not ultimately determines just about everything that we think and do and I saw that and I'm like, oh, man, uh, I don't want to see that. But that in my gut uh, struck me as quite correct. And then the Escape from Evil book, I didn't get to for a couple of weeks. But in there, uh, Becker just says that that most of the evil in the world is the result of people self-righteously trying to rid the world of evil in an effort uh, to assuage their own death anxiety. So to make a, a short story long, I, I was hooked. I, I called my buddies, Jeff and Tom, Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pazinski from graduate school. I said, uh, uh, you have to read this guy. He's explaining everything we wanted to understand. Why do people need self-esteem? Uh, why do we cling so tenaciously to our beliefs to the point uh, where we're willing to annihilate somebody because they don't worship the same God or pledged to the same flag. And, um, you know, then what happened is we started trotting around Earth talking about Becker's ideas, uh, much to the consternation of most academic psychologists. So on the one hand, um, theologians, uh, English professors, just regular people, they found Becker's ideas quite appealing. Psychologists were repulsed maybe by us, but by the ideas themselves. Becker won a Pulitzer Prize, but couldn't get a job. And, and the argument was that he was an entertaining lecturer whose ideas might be of interest, but they can't be of value because there's no evidence for them. And it would just be impossible to find evidence in support of his claims. And, and his claim very simply is that the way that we manage death anxiety it is by embracing culturally constructed belief systems that give us a sense that life has meaning and we have value, and that we therefore, quite unaware, spend all of our waking moments, for the most part, devoted to maintaining confidence in our worldview, as well as confidence in our value as individuals. And it was after years of trying to publish just a paper describing Becker's ideas uh, that uh, the editor said, you know, you're not going to get anywhere uh, unless you can, quote, prove this by traditional scientific standards. Now, half of me was like, well, fuck that. These ideas are too big. Uh, and you're being an intellectual fascist when you claim that there's only one way to derive evidence for any particular notion. On the other hand, uh, we were, in fact, trained as uh, scientists uh, to use the scientific method, uh, not as the only way to triangulate on a better understanding uh, of the world around us, but surely a, a real good one, because as far as we can tell, no method has done better to date 
uh, at pointing out not so much what's true, but ruling out what's not true. So for the last 35, almost 40 years, uh, we have under the rubric of terror management theory, which was just our effort to take Becker's 12 or 14 books and condense them into a paragraph uh, of theoretical statements from which we could derive hypotheses that could then be subjected to empirical scrutiny. So English translation, we've been testing Becker's ideas uh, and we now believe that there's an impressive body of evidence, a, a, a big chunk of which has been collected by independent researchers uh, around the world that have no connection uh, to our lab. And I think that's what makes this work compelling. If you're the only one doing it, that's interesting, but it doesn't become science until other folks are able to replicate your findings and are sufficiently interested to undertake those ventures. Okay. Okay. Um, I think I've jotted down probably about four or five <laughs> questions based <laughs> off what you said there. Um, especially, I mean, I'm really interested in your your personal existential experience when you were young there. I think I probably had roughly the same, <laughs> same thing. I guess you maybe be surprised to find people who didn't go into philosophy or theory that yep. <laughs> didn't ha didn't have that kind of thing happen and that's that's the reason most of them end up is saying oh god i'm gonna die i yep. need to, i need uh, you know i've got this 70 years left to quickly find some reason yep. um but before we jump into these things and the specifics of, of of the book i do have to ask you the hermetics question um you can place three thinkers living or dead uh into a room and listening on the conversation uh who do you pick yeah i you know uh <laughs> That question, which you sent me ahead of time, has uh, kept me agitated and awake <laughs> uh, since I saw it. And I, I just, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I've had so many triads. And, and, um, uh, and this may sound silly, but of late, I've, I've been wanting um, Abraham Lincoln and Bob Marley uh, and ooh, on top of that, um, ooh, Abraham Lincoln, Bob Marley, and of late, this will be an odd one, but Karen Horney, who's a, a psychoanalyst of yesteryear, who, who wrote one of my favorite books called Neurosis and Human Growth, The Struggle uh, for Self-Realization. You know, but then the minute I say those things, it's like, yeah, but then I want Gandhi and Shakespeare and mother Teresa, so i i'm not sure i could be uh yeah uh, but i'll stick with my first triad okay i mean i mean i'll draw in the other ones you said i mean between that whole six there seems to be an underlying current of uh not to sound too soppy but love love and Absolutely. understanding okay so is that yeah. a is that a big thing for you in relation to death as a way to yeah it, it really is so wow james and thank you for yanking that out because i i i do think um, you know, that there's two things that uh, when someone's like, all right, you know, haiku it for me. If you have to put all of the what's important on a fortune cookie. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it would be the Abraham Lincoln idea of uh, Lincoln said, um, it's not the years in your life. It's the life in your years. Mm -hmm. And I always like that as kind of a pithy way uh, of pointing out what's at stake. And then there's the existential notion. Uh, well, and it's also a, 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 just a frankly evolutionary one. And that is that uh, we are uber social at our best 
um, uh, hyper empathetic individuals who thrive on care and compassion. Not only, uh, I mean, very obviously, uh, we are all of us that are breathing today are the beneficiaries of someone else's care and compassion. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also the case, and here I'm relying on, on uh, the Martin Heidegger when he talks about care as just a fundamental human attribute. And I kind of like that because it reminds me that we don't come into the world uh, like most Americans uh, are now, just culturally constructed meat puppets, you know, <laughs> rarely transcending the monosyllabic utterance uh, as uh, we kind of stumble our way through life. And uh, rather, uh, we're just naturally uh, compassionate and concerned uh, about those around us. Indeed, just the word consciousness, as I understand it, you know, we got con and everyone knows at the beginning, that means with, and evidently the shush part at the end is derived from a Greek word that means to know. So even just the basic idea of phenomenologically, we think that we're kind of self-contained individuals, you know, in our own head. But even our subjective sense of self, as Nietzsche kept earnestly pointing out, it is the result of our ongoing intersections with our fellow humans. And so, yeah, I would say that that's what's striking about all of those folks. Okay. Okay. Is there is there is there a topic that you'd like them to sort of? Do you think they gravitate towards, or do you think it'd just be a general conversation? Well, I, actually, I would ask all of them as maybe this would be obvious to just weigh in on uh, their sense of things uh, mm-hmm. at the moment, and, and part of that is as an American right now, uh, it is actually very difficult for me. Uh, to wake up on any given day and not see us uh, as Lincoln must have woken up every day uh, on the precipice uh, of the Civil War. So, um, yeah, that war never ended in America. And here we are back on the cusp of another one. Uh, almost literally. And so uh, I see us on the threshold of fascism and making, unfortunately, steady progress in that direction. And I'd want to appeal to all of these folks for uh, just some wisdom and insight about how to proceed. Um, You know, even Bob Marley, for example, was intimately connected with the political affairs of Jamaica. And I love reading a book by the prime minister at the time, Michael Manley, uh, talking about the role uh, of the arts in fostering personal growth and social progress. So yeah, that's what I would ask them first is, uh, you know, what, what do you think of what's up? Okay, okay. I'm sure these thinkers will come back in. I mean, especially that the idea of love is, you know, one of the few things which can actually, you know, this, as Becker makes clear, there's very little once you uh, peel it away, which can truly deal with, with death. Um, That's right. Perhaps, perhaps love is one of those few things which we can, we can utilize. But actually, I want to, I want to go back to your, uh, your eight year old existential crisis that you had when you were younger. And it seems, you know, you know, it's often said that people get pets to teach kids things, things die, things end. Um, but 
It's interesting that you you had you you said it's actually an existential crisis. Do you think there's a difference between people simple? You know, everyone knows. Everyone knows you die, but is, do you think there's a key difference between knowing it and truly having that experience where you you accept right that I am I am a being of flesh? Yeah. I'm I'm gone soon. Do you think there's a big difference between yeah I that do I, acceptance? James, that's awesome. So I'm going back to Bob Marley. Uh, who feels it knows it. You know that knowing. It, it requires an emotional recognition. That's why I tossed Karen Horney into my pile of people, uh, because she, um, besides being an ardent feminist and leading the way uh, for rendering psychological discourse a little bit more gender ecumenical, she was one of the first that I encountered who insisted that intellectual recognition um, uh, is not only uh, uh, deceptive, but, but it could be counterproductive because uh, people could say all the time, I know that I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. All right, but this getting back to Heidegger, his point is, is that everybody says that for the most part. I know I'm going to die. And then, of course, if we had something tracking what was happening in their head, what they always go on to say is that I know I will die someday at some vaguely unspecified future moment. And Heidegger's point is that, no, 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 that's not, that's not getting to where Camus wants us to get, come to terms with death thereafter, anything is possible. You're just, that's death denial uh, for Heidegger. When you say, I'm going to die someday, Uh, Because what you're doing is defensively inserting these imaginary chunks of time that separates you from uh, your always impending doom. So genuine acceptance of our mortality is the realization that a comet could come through my office window and take my head off as I speak, uh, or I can walk outside and get, uh, you know, smote by the virus and so on. And and so, um, yeah. To get back to your fine point, James, this is something, uh, and in psychobabble these days, they're talking about embodied cognition, Mm -hmm. which is a very, uh, you know, finally, the psychologists are getting back to the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers when they realize that uh, whatever it is that we call ourselves is inextricably connected uh, to a physical carcass that is not only energized by our cognitions, but more directly influenced by our emotions. And so it's got to be an integrated uh, beyond just thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what do you think society would look like if, if you know, every single person did do as Heidegger and Camus says that we should do if everyone just had a true acceptance and had that idea that, you know, in the next minute they could die? Do you think, do you think there'd be some big key differences or do you think things might actually just go along the same yeah wow i'd love to do that experiment um the the hope would be that there would be fundamental differences because in our work what we argue is that a, a substantial proportion of humankind's most unsavory characteristics are the result of malignant manifestations of repressed death anxiety and so uh, you know we, we do studies showing, for example, when we remind people that they're going to die, uh, for the most part, uh, they become racist and bigots. They like their own tribe more, and they disparage, dehumanize, and are even willing to destroy 
anyone that they consider the other. Mm-hmm. Right? When we remind people that they're going to die, uh, it makes them uh, the more supportive of populist and um, charismatic political leaders like Hitler or Orange Hitler, Donald Trump, as I call him. And indeed, our studies show that subtle death reminders have profound effects on political preferences. We remind people that they're going to die and they become uncomfortable with their bodies and they become more eager to trash the natural environment. They they, they become um, insatiable consumers. Uh, of money uh, and stuff and our death reminders moreover uh, magnify uh, all existing psychological disorders Uh, and so uh, you know to be glib you know our point is is that if we don't do something uh, you know we're in trouble that that these these non-optimal reactions to non-conscious reminders of death you know, they're literally, they're turning us into a a humankind at our worst, you know, just these hateful, uh, warmongering, proto-fascists plundering the planet and our insatiable zeal uh, for money and stuff, and like a TV, Facebook, Twitter stupor. Uh, And, you know, in our most, in in our more histrionic moments, we're like with Robert J. Lifton, he said, look, Uh, we may be the first form of life to be responsible for our own extinction. So to be extreme, yeah, what I would like to think is that, and this is what we argue in the worm at the core book, we're like, we're at a psychological crossroads. We can keep being death denying creatures, in which case we're just sawing our own branch off of the tree of life, or Individually and collectively, we could make efforts to come to terms with our mortality. Uh, And, you know, one way there was a guy, Geza Roheim, who's a Hungarian anthropologist, and he just said, civilization is like a baby who's afraid of the dark. And we're like, it's time for humankind to get out of diapers. And uh, we talk about it in terms of existential maturity. Uh, to have the collective courage to accept uh, with grace and humility uh, the reality of our condition, which is that uh, we have this unbelievable and uh, basically undeserved um, existence. You know, it's great that we're alive. And the hope is, is that we can uh, not be so arrogant as to proclaim uh, any more purview than any other living thing uh, that has ever existed in the history of Earth. And so, yeah, this may sound maybe like Mary Poppins mixed with Walt Disney. Yeah, but I would like to think that if people were genuinely accepting uh, of their own mortality, that we would see less of these other, like I keep referring them to, not particularly optimal uh, human behaviors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's uh, that's fairly morbid. That I that that sort of um, those studies you put forward, your you spoke about there, that in when when we were reminded of our mortality, that we we sort of just double down on the the defense mechanisms, which we've you know the things which 
are keeping death at, at bay in an artificial sense, which Becker goes on about, whether it's, you know, institutions, religion, um, populist movements, nations, you know, the idea of adhering to some form of collective comfort. We just double down on them instead of... But I guess that, once again, is that the difference between acceptance and knowledge of death? Like, you know, that's knowledge of death, saying, oh, I know about death, but I'll just stay here, whereas acceptance is it's something beyond that. So, I mean... I mean, this is a super tough question. I guess it's the one that in terror management theory you're always trying to work towards is is what do you think it takes for someone to bridge that gap to yeah. to to go from knowing about death, which we all do, to truly accepting it and actually then using that as a springboard to, you know, as a trajectory for your life from then on. What do you think yeah. it takes to really embed it in someone? Yeah. Now that I don't know. Uh, Now, I applaud the question. You know, I say this when generally if I get a chance to talk to folks and I and I mean this as a compliment. Anytime I get a fantastic question of genuine importance, I'm like, dude, if I could answer that, I'd be chugging rum out of a coconut, uh, you know, with my Nobel Prize on a beach. Um, Not to sound defensive, but my buddy Jeff Greenberg, if he were here with us, what he would say is, that's an awesome and a critically important question that what we call terror management theory is not equipped to address. We were really trying, you know, Becker writes all these books where he's like, here's what death denial, here's the toll that it takes on us. And indeed, everything that he says that we've looked at empirically, uh, that he turns out to be quite right, where he is less able to be of use and us too is the well okay how do we parlay this knowledge uh, into practical advice about how to proceed in light of it and that's where i'm like who knows i mean you've got the philosophers so socrates i think who said to philosophize is to learn how to die Mm-hmm. And of course, Montaigne said the same thing, picking up on Socrates. And so, you know, one possibility is that this is a lifelong task that uh, ought be undertaken early and often. And indeed, there in a there are theological traditions that converge on the same thought: the Tibet, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Or, or the medieval monks, you know, working with the skulls uh, on their desk. And so that would be one approach, uh, but surely not the only one. But, you know, I like the existential psychotherapy types, like uh, uh, who would it be? Rollo May and Irvin Yalom. Uh, and they write about, well, all right, you know, what, what up? What are the implications of this? psychodynamically yeah and they're like well every human has these universal concerns we're all concerned about death whether we know it or not and we're all concerned uh, about uh the implications of that fact for our choices and our sense of freedom and and we all from time to time experience pangs of existential isolation when we realize that no one's going to die for us and, and that all of these things run the risk of putting us in an unfortunate state of meaninglessness. And the argument that I find compelling is that there's no one recipe for any of us in therapy or in terms of our own personal explorations, because 
Um, you might have lots of concerns about death, but if you're working with a therapist uh, existentially, well, it, that might never arise. You might spend your time thinking about issues concerning meaning or freedom, and a successful resolution of those concerns might assuage uh, existential anxieties uh, where they need not be explicitly confronted, which is just my long-winded say, long-winded way of saying that uh, I'm not sure uh, there is just one recipe. But I would submit that uh, at least holistically, a good start would be to recognize that Western civilization, as we know it, is one giant and uh, appalling effort to deny death. So there's the recognition that of the role of existential anxieties that perfuse throughout the culture. And, and yeah, then there's the, uh, along with that, um, the, uh, how, the implications for how that would affect um, education uh, broadly defined uh, and what I mean there is that usually uh, the most important things in life, I call it LSD, love, sex, and death, uh, have no place in most either educational or religious curriculums. And uh, it seems to me that we need to start addressing those concerns uh, a whole lot earlier and realize that little kids are existentialists much sooner and more profoundly than most of us are willing to concede. If you ask parents about their children, they're like, my kids aren't concerned about death, you know, five or six year old kids. And there's a famous study where uh, I think it was Sylvia Anthony, a British woman, uh, writes about this in the 1950s or something. You ask parents, you know, what are, you, what are your five and six year old kids more concerned about? Are they more concerned about dying or, or a spelling test? And the parents are like, my kids don't even know what death is. Um, the, the, of course, they're more worried about their test. Right, but then you ask the kids and they're like, fuck spelling. Uh, I'm much more concerned uh, about life and death. So I guess my point is, is that, yeah, I would lobby um, uh, for uh, just pronounced changes in the way that we interact with these notions about life and death uh, that make it uh, more possible to engage folks early and often in those domains in age-appropriate ways. You don't tell your two-year-old in diapers that they can be summarily obliterated at any moment and to get used to it. Hmm. I mean, there's a couple of questions. I mean, one one thing is that I think, especially when you're talking about kids having that, that existential sort of despair, I'm not sure it's despair because would you agree that when you're that age, you haven't had the time to you know inherit the personality of the western world so you, right. you know your your understanding or your opinion or your reaction to what death is in quotation marks you you've defined that by your own means you might think oh this is interesting at one point you know i'm not alive anymore what does that mean but every everything else teaches you oh no death you know death's awful we have to hide it from you, you yes know, people say like when people when parents or grandparents die sometimes they tell young kids oh they've gone on holiday because it's the worst thing ever but i feel if we moved away from that attitude of like death and suffering being the worst things that could ever be you might develop a more uh, productive relationship with it where we're not all going around with this this deep-seated fear 
yeah, I think you're onto something. I think that's the direction to go in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, there's another question there because you bring up the Western world. Do you think, because I did some research recently into overpopulation and the average life expectancy in 1800 was 30. And, yeah. the, av- and the average life expectancy now is, is a- around 80 for the Western world. So yeah. do, you, do you think nowadays, modern times, our you know fear of death is far worse because we're not we don't really deal with it on an on average scale most people won't deal with it until you know way later in life yeah again james i think you make a fine point and of course i wasn't there back in the day (laughs) but um you know now my joke is is like wow um i'm 67 um so i'm gonna live at least till my age reaches my iq at 70 but in the back in the day you know 30 years to wrap it up. And then infant mortality rate was like 50% in the West. There's no doubt that death was more poignant and pronounced and immediate. uh, And that we have gone to extraordinary lengths to distance ourselves from death, not only by not dying, I'm a big fan of living, by the way. Uh, But we but but as Ernest Becker points out, ironically, and tragically, uh, as technology has improved and uh, our life expectancy has expanded, we've become more afraid of death, but not less afraid. And and I like how he explains it. He's like, well, if your life expectancy is 30 and you're 10 years old and fall off a mountain and die, yeah, that's tragic because you've just lost 20 years of your life. But what if you expected to live to 70? Well, that's uber tragic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then what if we get life extension so you can expect to live to a million? Becker's point is that uh, the, that, that may make us even more hyper anxious uh, about dying because you might be able to banish death, but you'll never be able to banish chance events that run the risk of our uh, obliteration. You know, so you have a lot of the folks saying, oh, yeah, let's just get rid of our bodies and upload our identity uh, onto a computer cloud. Uh, but my joke to those folks is, oh, so that, uh, that, that sounds fine. Oh, but, um, you know, let's remember you're going to be dead and whoever you are is on a cloud in like Phoenix, Arizona, someplace, which within 10 years will be uninhabitable. And do you think when the electrical grid goes down that whoever owns your identity on a cloud is going to um, bother to be sure uh, that you're still in existence? My, my point is, is that um, the, I, I see just increasingly strenuous efforts uh, to extend ourselves in ways that I believe to be pathological manifestations of death denial. And this is a hard one because I, I like, like I say, I like living. I'm trying to have it both ways, but I think it's arrogant and unfortunate to, for any of us to proclaim uh, a superiority to any other thing that's ever been alive. And every other thing that's ever been alive uh, uh, comes to an end. I, I just have a problem um, with this idea that there's something uh, desirable and justifiable about extending any of us in perpetuity. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean that that brings it a good point that you you brought up the quote the, the quote earlier. It's not the 
it's not the the years in your life it's the life in your years you know it's what you do with it the intensity of your understanding your knowledge your experiences you know there's people who've probably lived to 30 who've had better lives than many people who are in the west who live to 80 in some dead-end job never really understanding or exploring the world um which you know you you bring up the reason i bring this up is because you bring up life extension and i think in the west life extension when you you know you, you end up something happens when you're 70 or 60 that we consider a sort of a bug because you know you've got ill and people aren't meant to die or whatever and they flood you with pills and you you've got a pacemaker in and slowly and slowly more and more robotics and artificial external things have to come in to maintain your life and for this this for me always really brings to the fore how terrified we are because it's not some at that point you're not actually maintaining you're not you're not asking a question of quality you're not saying well what were you doing with your life you know are you truly experiencing life you're just it's just a question of quantity like we need to keep you going because life has to keep going and you know i mean i don't i don't know what you'd make of that but i'm just putting the point in there that i think life extension isn't really what we think it is it's it's an absolute you know terrifying thing because often you, people are kept alive simply as like you know there's no longer anyone there that you actually you know, there's no not to get too soppy or use the wrong language but there's no soul yeah. or essence there anymore it's almost like just a piece of piece of meat being kept alive for the mere fact it is alive yeah and again i think there's uh like any complicated idea people of goodwill could have spirited disagreement mm -hmm. but i concur with your view that um beyond an admirable effort to improve public health in ways that have a byproduct which is to extend our lives that's different than to be solely preoccupied with maximizing the amount of time that one happens to be breathing, even if you're reduced to a respiring pincushion uh, with a relatively meager opportunities. So, yes. Mm -hmm. Do you mind if I ask you, are you, are you religious? Do you have, do you, what's your view of, is it, for you, has anything happened after death? Uh, yeah, I get uh, just I'm going Epicurean these days on, on that, which is that, you know, I am a, a momentary aggregation uh, of uh, molecules that have existed since the Big Bang uh, that coagulated uh, for, uh, you know, a fleeting moment in order to compose me. Uh, and that uh, when this particular entity that I define as myself has physically expired, that uh, those same atoms will then uh, be on their way uh, to engage with fellow molecules in the cosmos, perhaps to, um, you know, band up and form a lizard or a potato or a star or maybe another person. And, and Again, to each their own, but maybe it's that I'm on the cusp of senility. But the, the older I've gotten, James, uh, I find that uh, not not terrifying. So here I am being disinclined to die, literally terrified for most of my life. And again, I'm, I have no interest in dying uh, in the near future if I can help it. But but yeah, more and more, uh, I'm comforted. I, I, I call it radical insignificance. Um, you know, and it may sound corny, but it has the virtue of being true. We, we are all 
uh, come into the world at a time and a place not of our choosing, ensconced in a body that is similarly uh, not by virtue of our own choices, you know, and we're here for an infinitesimally small amount of time in a cosmos, the dimensions of which we are still unaware, but we do know it to be benignly indifferent to our fate. And um, so you can either be like Pascal, the mathematician, completely mortified by that realization, or, or you go with the Epicureans and the Lucretius types uh, who are uplifted by that thought and who, moreover, uh, point out the complications of thinking otherwise. And so, the, you know, the, back in the day, uh, the gods were immortal and miserable. It, it was boring and banal to live forever uh, and uh, as uh, like the ancients point out and you know and I also like I think it's Lucretius uh, who who just says you know uh, think of life as like a banquet uh, and uh, and it's like you know think of any uh, stellar meal that you've ever had well the fact is is that one of the things that makes it great is that you get to the end of it or, or think of the best novel that you've ever read. Well, it wouldn't be the best if it never ended. And so I just like this idea that uh, as odd as it sounds, that all of us are ultimately unfulfilled until mm -hmm. the moment that we no longer are. I think that's a Heidegger notion that none of us will be around to witness the completion of our lives. But that shouldn't dissuade us in principle from appreciating that what makes life so poignantly sweet is the vague and not so vague awareness that it's not infinite. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, that, that of course, brings forth the, 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 the interesting question of, you know, we've always whether or not you're religious you know whether or not you you, you agree with the, the principle of an afterlife which is an which is an eternity of existence in some form or you know in the more contemporary way ray kurtzweil with as you've already mentioned uploading your yep. consciousness so you're alive for eternity there but you know that brings forward that that which is a question which i think heidegger dealt with directly which is well okay if you live forever then all the things which give us meaning in our life Many of them, if not most of them, only have that purpose and meaning because they're understood on a finite time frame. So there's always yes. the question, and sort of like the Groundhog Day question is, well, in what sense does anything have any meaning or purpose if it if it's on a scope of infinity? Yes. You know, the whole point of saying, well, which is why I guess we respect people who say, well, I've dedicated my life to a certain tiny facet of human culture. You respect that because you, this person has understood, I've got... A, a small amount of time on this earth and I have used it on, you know, being a scholar or of Husserl or something. And that is, and that's why the, where the respect comes, because if you, if you, if you live forever and you said, I spent, you know, 80 years studying <laughs> Nietzsche, you go, well, that doesn't, it doesn't matter because you've got another infinity years. Yeah. <laughs> no, James, I love that point. Uh, and, um, who I can't remember. And it doesn't matter. Uh, there's a, a philosopher named Martha Nussbaum and, and, she wrote about um, that notion. And I, I do think that 
it's important when when I talk about it, and I'm being kind of a dick, I guess, but I'm I'm like the very notion of meaning would be meaningless if we lived forever. Mm-hmm. Not not you you put it beautifully. Not, nothing would matter. You know the way Martha Nussbaum put it is like, well, what does it mean to say that someone was generous or courageous? Mm-hmm. You know, so what? I helped my I helped you across the street. I got hit by a car, but no matter, because I'm living forever. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. I gave you my lunch, but no matter, I'll have another one. Mm-hmm. And Nussbaum points out that the things that render humans at our best, most noble and heroic, are actions that are undertaken to varying degrees in light of the awareness of our finitude. And I find that quite compelling. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that brings forward a question of, of I think, really the difference between mortality and immortality is one of 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 being human right because as soon as you have that immortality everything is is you know what what are the what are the reasons for being human is being mortal and you know do you think there's some truth in that that sense of as soon as you try eradicate death which is a solely human thing you do become extremely machinic you become a sort of machine because you're working then on on what you know on what spectrum are you working if not with the finitude of life yeah, again, I, but perhaps not surprisingly. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, there's a guy, Alexander Smith. He's a Scottish dude who wrote a, an essay in the 1860s where he says, it is our knowledge that we have to die that makes us human. Mm-hmm. And I really find that as compelling today as when I bumped into that you know, phrase decades ago. I, I think that sums it up pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um you've you've i mean i i sort of <laughs> i don't normally ask these kinds of questions but you you know you've made it clear that you enjoy living and i know you know <laughs> you in terms of the western world you're you're still you know you're still pretty young i i have this compulsion to ask this now i mean if you if you knew you were to die in two days time what would your how would your thinking change i hope not at all but that's a great no awesome question i, I ask myself that all the time uh, because and i i and this is one of these questions, not to sound like a, a researcher, but, mm-hmm. but that is what I do for a living. And that is, I, you could ask anybody you want, and my guess is whatever they say wouldn't matter unless it was actually happening. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to tell you that if I knew I was going to live for two more days, that it would alter not one thing, because my hope would be, uh, you know, channeling Heidegger that... He says, if you're living authentically, you always have plenty of time. Mm-hmm. And, that, um, you know, another point, not claiming to understand the, the Heidegger or anything, rather, uh, is, um, you know, yeah, I, I like the idea um, of, um, of, of just thinking like that. But I just, yeah, I really, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, I really don't know. Half of me is like, yeah, I wouldn't do anything else because my days are rich and I've, uh, you know, I, I'm at a point. And again, I don't know if I actually live up to these ideals, but uh, I talk a good talk. Uh, I'm like, okay, um, I like that I'm a psychologist and that we've written some books and that people are interested. But 
I don't want to, I, I, I have to be ever vigilant to the possibility that this is my own yearning for immortality, getting the better of me uh, by rendering me comfortably numb in light of the adulation that we get for our work. Yeah, we're proud of our work, but it's a beautiful day in New York today. And I was equally enamored with taking a walk in the woods with our dog this morning. And so I'd like to think in a in my you know ideal world, yeah, I'm gonna die, and so I'll keep doing whatever I would do in the in pursuit of authenticity. On the other hand, I am uh, my fear is that if you told me I was gonna die in two days, that I would already be on the internet, you know, ordering a fifty pound block of chocolate and a wheelbarrow of every psychoactive substance that I've tried over the decades. <laughs> and as I max out all of my credit cards for an around the world flight, um, you know, in a first class cab, and I hope I wouldn't do that. No. Do you think there might be a third option though, for some people that you just panic? You wouldn't get anything done. You just absolutely. <laughs> no, because that's in fact, that's a great, no, James, I think that, that's a great description of all too many people, myself included from time to time. Because again, uh, Heidegger, he, 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 he talks about uh, a flight from death uh, in light of the awareness of our own mortality. And, and he's like, some people uh, in light of that, they just become like comfortably numb. So they're the ones, you know, sitting at home, you know, uh, drinking beer, spraying cheese whiz on a cracker, you know, watching TV. But another way to be tranquilized by the trivial is just to be frenetic. You know, I got to go shopping. I, I got to uh, do better in my career. And I, I think a lot of us in the West are in a low grade state of perpetual panic. And in fact, I'll go one up in light of the pandemic and the economic insecurities that now pervade the world. Yeah, I think a large chunk of Earth uh, is in a state of existential anxiety fueled panic reactions. I don't think that's an overstatement right now. Do you, do you think that, and that's because basically those those sort of Becker institutions, that idea, those institutions have been uprooted, but not enough really to transform anything fundamentally so we can see we can you know they've been uprooted a bit we can just about see underneath them and there's enough there to say but we all know that COVID-19 has sort of proved that actually a lot of what we rely on is complete BS but it hasn't done it enough that it's gone so we're sort of all left going huh do you still believe the illusion yeah me too me too you know there you go perfect but where'd you go (laughs) where'd you you go from that do you think it would be more beneficial to rip the band-aid off and rebuild maybe because again uh, you're channeling Nietzsche you know that was his uh you know the gay science 1880 something uh you know his famous proclamation God is dead and I always say got to read the rest of the paragraph because he's like (laughs) Christianity has become unbelievable that was exactly his point as I understand it James that we're caught between illusions uh, where uh life is such it was already happening between, uh, you know, the theory of evolution, the industrial revolution, the remarkable success of capital-based economic organization sure made religion seem like quaint nonsense. Now we have, 
the pandemic uh, has now, in, for some folks, blown away any subsidiary or remaining pretense of the viability uh, of these worldviews. Um, but nothing has yet emerged to replace them. So guy on your end of the pond, John Gray, a philosopher who I admire, he's like, yeah, uh, our religious belief systems uh, are no longer potent, but the universal human needs that underlie them remain as strong as ever. So here we are, fundamentally death-denying creatures divested of the belief systems that got us through life for thousands of years in the middle of a deadly pandemic that can't help but arouse existential anxieties. And I think that that's a fine, in a nutshell, explanation uh, for why on top of public health concerns, there is so much psychosocial dis-ease. I'm saying that word to put a hyphen between dis and ease that prevails right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, in John Gray's Straw Dogs, he says the only the only savior of the human race will be the one which teaches us we don't need a savior. Yeah. You know, that's one of my favorite books. Yeah. So I think there's a book that got me into philosophy actually. So, really? Yeah. I, have, I haven't heard too many people referencing John Gray, but he seems stuck as well. Like he's, he's got in a loop as well. So he, he hasn't really, I don't know. He hasn't taken the full leap somewhere. Like he's destroyed a lot of things that we rely on, such as progress and yeah. the notion of salvation. But he's also still stuck in that same, like, okay, well, where, where do we go? Yeah. And of course, that's, uh, I think that's reasonable. Uh, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. He, yeah. He was very charitable. He reviewed our book, The Worm at the Core, uh, for uh, British newspapers. Uh, and, you know, he's like, look, these guys, this is the most compelling empirical demonstration of the veracity of Becker's claims that death anxiety underlies a substantial proportion of human activity. And, then he just literally tears us apart because he's like, okay, uh, these guys do a good job uh, of showing how much death anxiety influences everything that people do, you know, and then they have the audacity to offer some limp-wristed palliatives at the end that will surely be insufficient to address a problem of this magnitude, which is, and that's fair, um, because it is easier to delineate the nature of the existential problem than it is to prescribe anything with regard to what to now do. And, you know, I, I, I read every one of John Gray's books as they come out, and I admire each of them. But you make a good point, James, and this is not a criticism so much as an observation, is that um, he's especially good uh, at explaining to us uh, why secular society is uh, just an atheistic religious worldview that is ultimately uh, rather superficial and unfulfilling compared to the ones that we've abandoned uh, uh, by adopting what we now have. And I think that's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. We seem to have got to the, you know, we've got to that dead end thing, which, which, which you get to, and that's no criticism of you. It is the question is once you've, once you've, you know, realized that that big problem, where do you go from there? But I mean, um, we're getting, we're getting on for now. So is there anything you've, you key that you feel we've missed about the book that you'd like to add in no that the, just james to uh, uh, to thank and appreciate 
folks like you that are uh, trying to um, engage with these ideas in ways that fosters wider dissemination. Because, you know, it's like, yeah, here we are again, uh, uh, where it always drifts, which is, okay, what now? Uh, And I like Ernest Becker at the end of the Escape from Evil book when he said, I I don't know. In fact, by the end of his life, he said, I'm pessimistic, but I'm not cynical. Mm -hmm. And I I like that. He just said, look, I I think uh, we're on a a path to self-destruction. But he still couldn't help it, nor can I. He subscribed to the Enlightenment ideal that on a good day, uh, if enough of us became sufficiently aware of what underlied our concerns, we might be able to do something about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so we weren't getting anywhere with the plague while we were saying it's because of evil spirits. Mm-hmm. Right? But then we figure out it's bacteria and then we get modern medicine, which it's problems notwithstanding is responsible for most of us who are currently breathing, still being here. Well, the, the goal then uh, would be, uh, and Becker said, well, I, th- I wish that uh, these ideas were, uh, why aren't they talking about, about them at the UN? Why aren't these ideas being discussed um, on television and in schools? And I, I, I think uh, unless somebody has anything better to propose, that that would be a good step one, which is to make enough people on earth aware of these ideas uh, in the service of hoping that some will ponder them sufficiently to be affected by them. Mm-hmm. But we don't, and again, this may sound naive, but there could be the next Jesus or Buddha or Lincoln uh, out there who's going to be able to use these ideas in ways that have radically transformative consequences. But at my point in life, I highly doubt that if that happens, it's because somebody has read uh, one of the papers about our experiments. You know, my point is that's a non-pharmacological intervention for insomnia. We're going to do our research and that's what we do. And the 12 people on earth that uh, read our papers. Hopefully, they'll be inspired by them. But I see in the world that we now reside in, uh, the best vehicle uh, for dispersal is not in the academy. It, it's folks like you saying, uh, I want to have my proverbial antenna in the cosmic mist. And I want to get folks that have ideas uh, that we can talk about. And then I want to toss them out there. And, and, you know, just to go throw on you, I think there's something in Walden where he throws a pebble in the pond. And then he talks about how, you know, you got these concentric circles that keep going out and that you can't tell what the ripple effects of uh, one's thoughts and, and utterances might have. And so back to my point is that I applaud uh, what you're doing. And this is what I think is most necessary to spread these ideas, not because uh, I say them, uh, you know, they're not my ideas. Uh, our, Our view has always been that there's nothing original about our work. 
except that we're not claiming to be original. We're just saying these are important ideas, and we think that there's a boatload of evidence in support of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of a frustration, though, because of many of the academics and people who are lecturers who are working within the academy all sort of agree on that, that that it's gone you know, it's gone away from that original foundation of a discussion which is meant to influence, you know, things. And I'm not a Marxist, but, you know, it always makes me laugh that Marx's statement that, uh, you know, we need, we need action. You yep. know, you're meant to change the world, not just talk about it. That that seems to be the one quote by Marx that the entire academy has just avoided because yep. it's slowly getting more and more constrained to the point where you go, well, and I don't mean this in a horrible way towards it, but as you said, you know, sort of sarcastically, as you know, you would probably understand, papers when you say the 12 people who read my paper it's like you know you probably wrote the best an amazing paper but something within the the the, the academies the way it's structured it just constrains everything and you think you know the most theses is are written are read by four people you know yep. the, the writer the the marker and maybe a couple of editors and it, it's yeah the ideas are the ideas are sort of stagnating, but I think the academy realizes this. I think most of them do, but how you get out of it, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, but I think this is a good start. So this is my view: is uh, let's start by spreading stuff around, and yeah. And the one thing I would say to folks that are hearing us converse is to just feel free um, to um, reach out. Uh, the people who know how to use the internet. I'm at Skidmore College in New York, so email me. Um, if you want to exchange ideas, I'm sure folks know how to find you. And uh, yeah, that's the hope that uh, I sure enjoyed our conversation today. But this wasn't about our mutual pleasure, uh, as much as hopefully being fruitful and of interest to the people who partake of it. Exactly. Exactly. Are you working on anything, uh, anything at the moment? Anything new? Or? I'm just right now to be silly. I'm working on um, making it through the day. If I uh, and I've got a variety of things that I'm excited about. Um, I have one project with some very talented uh, writers, and it's a science fiction podcast uh, wow. about an artificial intelligence, a robot smarter than any of us, uh, who finds out that she's mortal, <laughs> and that her creators made her mortal. The question is. Would a robot who found that she was mortal, uh, how would that entity react? Anyway, I just find that, um, and, and there, and the, it's a the overriding question of that project is about uh, AI morality. Can you have a moral machine? And the folks that are dabbling in this, they want to. And um, if that's the case, if a machine is going to be moral, does it have to be embodied? And I just, I like all of these. So I'm on one project doing that. And then I'm working with some very talented physicians that were designing um, existential um, therapy for traumatized healthcare workers. So, you know, one of the things that we don't talk about enough, um, at least in the U.S., is that um, the healthcare system is almost overwhelmed uh, uh, with psychosocial difficulties from taking care of people. Uh, And so we're going to try and test the efficacy of existential approaches to healthcare workers who have been adversely affected by their work. 
And then I'm working with some other folks. We want to try and write a book about uh, moral identity. Uh, and this has to do with uh, most books these days about political philosophy and moral issues uh, are based on assumptions about human nature that are demonstrably false. And um, and so we're going to try and step back and think about, in light of what we now know about human nature, um, uh, what would be the best way to proceed in terms of political and economic organization in order to enhance uh, individual development and social progress. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. And then I want to play the three chords that I play badly on the guitar for the last 30 years. I want to be able to play them a little better. <laughs> and uh, that's about it. <laughs> okay. Whereabouts can we find your work? Is there a central place or is it sort of? No, not at all. So we're kind of, um, if you want, you can look stuff up, but I, I just write to me, I think is the best way to find stuff about us. Okay. Uh, Yeah, it seems like a good place to finish up. Sheldon Solomon, thanks very much. Thank you, James.